plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Hello, Power Partners. It is Star Style. Be the star you are. We are going to do it with style. And Grace, welcome to our informational playground. We are coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel. And this program is brought to you under the auspices of Be the Star You Are charity, empowering women, families, and youth. My name is Cynthia Bryan. And I know that you're going to really enjoy this show today. We, in our second segment, we're going to be talking with author uh, Sarah Comber. And she has written just a marvelous, marvelous memoir. It's called The Same Moon. And uh, for any of you who have ever traveled or been in love and looked up at the moon and you think of a special person, this is going to be uh, quite an interesting romp as we go to Japan and back. So that will be coming up in segment two. Uh, In segment three, we'll be discussing, um, well, actually, we're going to talk a couple of times about it, uh, COVID-19, and we'll be comparing it, people compare it a lot to the Spanish flu, but I'm not so sure that's exactly what it should be compared to. So we are continuing our Wednesdays with writers today, and these are authors from the Authors Guild, and we're very happy to um, to be contributing to our disaster relief program by bringing authors onto the show who have had all their events and book signings and everything canceled, which is really uh, so disappointing. Now, the Miracle Moment is brought to you, of course, by Be The Star You Are charity. Please visit the website, bethestarur.org. We've been getting, during this um, coronavirus, we've been getting literally bombarded with people who want to be volunteers. So, I think people want to keep up their resumes and keep up their talents, but just know we're only looking for the best and the brightest. So we want people who really care because we want to help grow them. So be the star you are.org. For every beauty, there is an eye somewhere to see it. For every truth, there is an ear somewhere to hear it. And for every love, there is a heart somewhere to receive it. And that was actually written by Ivan Panin. And I thought it's appropriate because in our second segment, when we are talking about the same moon, um, you'll see how love is really, really taking care of it. Well, how is COVID-19 affecting your mental health? Uh, By now, the world is familiar with the physical threats of COVID-19, even though many states, countries are opening, it seems that there's other waves coming through. But the psychological impacts of this pandemic are just the beginning to come into focus. There was a new study from researchers at San Diego State University 
and Florida State University, and it quantified how deeply the coronavirus is straining the mental health of Americans. The study has to undergo uh, a peer review, so it's not formally released yet. But the details on the scope of the psychological struggles due to the virus are really pretty dire. It's full of grave findings. In April, so we're still going back, right? They found that one in four U.S. adults met the criteria that psychologists use to diagnose serious mental distress and illness. And that represents a 700% increase from data that was collected in 2018. And that's, meanwhile, 70% of Americans were experiencing moderate to severe mental distress. I mean, that's triple the rate seen in 2018. So while that surge in mental distress showed up across all ages and all demographic groups, young adults and those with children were expressing the most pronounced spikes. And you can really imagine why. First of all, you know, young adults do not want to be cooped up. They don't want to be sheltering in place. I mean, especially when you're young and active, you want to be out with your friends. And if you have children and they, this, there's no school, you, there's no uh, daycare. And so you're trying to do your work from home or maybe you're out of work and you have children at home and you're trying to do online schooling. It is really, really stressful. So the size of the increase probably isn't going to come as a shock, but in some ways it's the perfect storm for mental health issues because we're dealing with social isolation. We're dealing with anxiety around health because we don't really know what this virus is or how we're going to beat it. And there's the severe economic problems that are happening. People out of work, you know, unemployment, um, stock markets going up and down, stores closed, uh, bankruptcies. I mean, it's it's a pretty scary situation. So um, many researchers that actually weren't even affiliated with that study from San Diego and Florida say on top of the loss of jobs and the obvious health risks that are associated with COVID-19, this element of uncertainty is just causing Americans a great deal of distress. People don't know when we're going to get back to a normal life, if we ever are going to have a normal life. Personally, I don't believe that we're going to go back to the normal that we knew before. But who knows? This has forced the U.S. politicians, public health officials into kind of what we call a lose-lose dilemma. I mean, both groups are now weighing the life and death risk of exposing people to the virus against the hardships created by shutting down the economy or staying at home or sheltering in place or the lack of, you know, people being able to go to large gatherings or um, our weddings or funerals, etc. So this new study seems to substantiate these concerns. And while some people point to the psychological blowback as a reason to um, just reopen everything and lift all restrictions, that too it can it is causing stress for a lot of people because a lot of people don't want everything open so quickly. And also, if you had to shut back down again, that could have a really negative consequence from a mental health perspective. Like for example, here where I am in Northern California, they have been slowly opening up for the last week. 
And as they have every single day, the, the virus count is going up and the death count is going up. So, I mean, we really don't know what is going to happen. So here are some other, like, here are some emotional side effects that we have to think about, too. And therapists are, you know, they're using remote methods of communication. So if you do have a therapist or you need to talk to a doctor, there is all the, the telemedicine that's going on. And we're going to cover telemedicine in another, in another show. But there are certain emotional responses to this current need of isolation, which is taking a toll on personalities and on relationships. And of course, then there's the financial hardship and the uncertainty of is school going to open in the fall? Uh, are there, is there going to be childcare? I mean, no, again, nobody has the answers to any of it. Uh, graduates this year, you know, sadly didn't, they had virtual graduations I know um, some of our volunteers were talking about their virtual graduations. Some had like car parades, but others had just a picture on the internet with a quote, you know, and they felt so let down. So it's been, there's been a lot of side effects and we're definitely having a lot of frustrations and worries and fears. And some of these may include we might be less patient and much less tolerant with other people. And we're actually seeing that with, with just all the, the racial crises that we're having right now. The tolerance level of people has diminished. And when we feel stressed, we can easily discharge our stress onto others if we're not careful. And the psychological term is displacement. And its function is to release our negative feelings in order to avoid having them swirl within. But people really don't do this consciously. And it's a common means of finding some relief, but it's an unhealthy coping mechanism. And it comes at the expense of others. So one way to combat this is to be highly aware of our underlying feelings, especially if you're feeling frustrated or if you're worried or if you're angry. We have to learn to deal with them in more constructive ways than lashing out at others. And, you know, if you're living in a small place and there's other people in there, boy, you're going to feel claustrophobic and it's pretty easy to lash out. So having less patience and tolerance for frustration when our world has suddenly shrunk, little things that wouldn't bother you as much in the past are just magnified. I mean, and it's, it's not your fault. So just remember that. We've all heard about people's reactions when stores um, have run out of certain supplies. I mean, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, we all witnessed the craziness around toilet paper or hand sanitizer or, or uh, bleach or even dishwashing soap. I mean, people were literally fighting in the aisles over things. So people demonstrated, you know, a... Uh, actually with guns to push for earlier reopening of sex uh, of our society that would fall into that category of a major frustration. So people feeling are really feeling less in control of their lives and the distress that life has become more difficult and unpredictable. And they're right. We're not in control and it is unpredictable and it is more difficult. And we're very saturated with frustrations, fear and worry 
So it could be hard to accommodate one more thing. But we have to take good care of ourselves physically and emotionally during this difficult time. We need to have patience with ourselves. We have to, uh, we're going to have a lot more challenges that are going to come up. And now that it's summer, hopefully we can relax a little bit more and enjoy hopefully some downtime. And, but we can't let all of our standards down. We're still going to have to be, take precautions, whatever those precautions are in your area. In other words, there are already so many external pressures. It helps to relax your internal ones. Try some meditation. I have found that that really works well. If you like yoga, um, that's another way. Just breathe. Take a walk in the woods. Um, just walk outside. Just go outside. Look at the moon. Look at the stars. Look at the sky. You know, I, I just, when I get frustrated, I can look at the clouds going over, and that seems to release tension. So this is a time when we need to focus on our strengths, not on our weaknesses. And we need to be proud of what we've done to help ourselves and to help our children get through this exceptional time. Um, we're, we just have to continue managing what we can and quit putting unneeded pressure on ourselves to present a positive image all the time. And remember that kids are capable of witnessing their parents' sadness and frustration as long as they feel secure. So allow your children to have a small window into your reality, but be careful to shield them from too much of your distress because we don't want to give, uh, you know, they need to understand that life has challenges, but at the same time, they may not be equipped to deal with them effectively. So it's a time where we need to allow ourselves to lean on others emotionally, share our, our sadness about what we miss in life, and our worries and frustrations can help unburden ourselves and give have enough support for ourselves um, through through friends and family, whether that's you know by phone or six feet apart, distancing, whatever it is. So. If you are having any struggles, just remember you are not alone. And if you need to contact a crisis center, there are hotlines that do do so, and there are people there waiting to help you. So you're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to Japan. So Ichini Sanji, be ready. Be back in a bit. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a Dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world, lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR, 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 and visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan, www.cynthiabryan.com. 
This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business. Well, we're back with our Wednesdays with writers, and I'm very excited because we're going to take a journey to Japan. My guest is Sarah Coomber. She grew up in Minnesota, North Dakota, border, and she was always fascinated by stories of international students and her grandfather who spent years in Tanzania. And she ended up with her own cultural adventures in Japan. She has written a marvelous memoir, beautifully written, uh, called The Same Moon. Welcome, Sarah, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Thank you, Cynthia. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so thrilled. Um, I thought that the Vancouver, the Columbia wrote, you know, a journey through Japanese culture and a journey toward self-understanding, security and faith. I thought they really captured it with that, that little burb. Uh, so uh, let's jump right in. You said that this is a story of redemption. So you were running away from your Minnesota life, a failed marriage. You were only 24. Uh, but Basically, you had just everything had been great in your life until you had this sadness of divorce. And uh, but you had been an exchange student to Japan. So let's start with how you fell in love with Japan and your first love, <laughs> um, and how it brought you back to Japan. Yes. Um, so I did go to Japan when I was sixteen originally. And it was really a whim where I, I didn't see it as being more of a one and done sort of a thing. You know, I'd go and have a summer experience and um, just, you know, enjoy what there was to enjoy, kind of go shallow, I guess, is what I was sort of thinking. You know, my real interest was actually Germany. <laughs> and um, when I got there, you, I, I have to interrupt. Were you yeah. assigned to Japan or did you choose Japan? Well, I did choose. I applied to Japan, but it was because my parents would not let me apply to Germany because oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> that would have been a year. Before. Okay. Well, yeah. the reason I asked is because when I was a, a teenage ambassador, I was supposed to go to Germany oh. and 
five days before I left, they sent me to Holland. So oh. I was just wondering <laughs> if it was the same kind of deal that you yeah. were just, you switched. Okay. Yeah, no, it was, it was more that my parents said, you know, a year is too long. The Germany program is too long. Um, and then the guidance counselor at my school said, Hey, you know, psst, there's this program to Japan for just a couple of months. And my parents were like, okay, you can apply for that. And so that's how I ended up there. And it was when I arrived there, you know, I ended up set up with this amazing family. They just really brought me in. They had two daughters and they brought me in kind of like a third daughter. And they really showed me so much, so much grace um, answering every question, even though we didn't share a language. Like they didn't really speak English. I didn't speak any Japanese, but somehow we developed this familyhood. And I really, I came home from that just thinking, I need to learn Japanese so I can go back and talk with them and have a true conversation. You know, and meanwhile, while I'm there, you know, I developed a crush on this baseball player. And that also made me think, oh, wouldn't it be fun to go back and see him again someday? You know, there was all these little tendrils right. that kind of started pulling at me. Well, and this is why the same, you have titled your book, The Same Moon, because Ryota showed you the moon <laughs> right right yeah right. he pointed to it on one of my last evenings there and just said you know look at the moon and when you're back in the states and I'm here in Japan we'll both be looking at that same moon and we can think of each other I mean, see I thought that was such a beautiful analogy I mean really wonderful and you know when you talk about your host family that is a special relationship that you develop because then when you went back um a few years later for the two years that you were teaching in Japan, you, you were in, you know, you, you weren't in the same area. You weren't, you were at about an hour away from your host family's mm -hmm. home, but they took you right back like the daughter you were for those few months. And, and now you could speak some Japan, Japanese with them. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And what I loved about that was, you know, here I'm now I've, I've got more Japanese language experience and I kind of thought, are we still going to like each other as much? You know, it kind of crossed my mind. Maybe it's going to be different now that we understand each other better. And they were exactly the people who, you know, I had initially had those wonderful first months with. And um, we just got to go deeper and deeper into our our strange familyhood, you know. And we're still in touch today, a little bit less so. You know, some years have passed. Mm -hmm. um, but we exchange gifts and we write to each other. And, you know, my... Uh, my host sister, same age host sister, is on Facebook, of course, so we keep up. And yeah, I think I could just go and knock on the door and they'd be like, oh, yeah, come on in. Have a oh, yeah, it, Well, <laughs> you would probably pick right up. Oh, well, yeah. let's go. Let's go where let's talk about um, the second time you go to Japan, because they send you photographs of where you're going to live. And it all it looks so bucolic you can't believe that this is going to be what it's like but you actually do get this wonderful apartment in this small little town of what less than 7500 people of the surrounding villages etc but um when it comes to what your actual work there's sort of a different aesthetic for men and women the way they are treated talk about the tea serving theme throughout the same moon <sighs> Yeah, so tea serving kind of became this thing for me because, you know, well, first of all, I had just come out of a marriage and so I was a little bit prickly, you know, about the male-female relationship thing. <laughs> and um, I really just wanted to be seen as an equal and I just wanted to, you know, go in and teach and help kids learn. Um, but then there's also this piece of it 
where there's this idea of fitting in. I wanted to become part of the community. I wanted to become part of those staffs that I was a, a member of. And um, it seemed that to be part of everything and to really join in, I needed to start joining the women and serving tea to the men, to my coworkers. And they were doing this all the time. It was seemed perfectly normal and perfectly natural for them. And I thought, wow, this is odd. When do the guys take their turn? And of course, they didn't. It was just how it was there. Well, I thought what was interesting is that tea was served four times during the workday, which you were very clear. It totally interrupted you. So you would be on a project and then you'd get up to serve tea. So if it was interrupting you, you knew it had to be interrupting the women, whereas the men went to have a smoke or they took a break or, you know, or they kept working. So what about the disparity of salaries then for the men and women? Because your grandmother had said to you, you know, they don't treat their women right. right. <laughs> so right. that had always stuck in your uh, stuck in your mind. It had, you know, and, and she said that having never been there, of course. Um, I think she had been there and wasn't things. she, didn't she have dementia a little bit at that time or was that before? I think she said that before that set okay. in. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the salary disparity, to be honest with you, for them. But what, what I found interesting is that when I did speak, when I got to know some of the women better, and I started asking about this. The attitude was when they need a tent set up or when they need to haul furniture, the men do it and the women don't. This is something that the women do that the men don't do. And I thought, well, that's interesting but like this is every day <laughs> and it's a different feeling than you know you put up a tent and everybody gives you kudos you serve tea and everyone's like oh here's the tea you know here's the tea well but you know they you they that one day you came in and it was announced that now the men were going to start serving tea but when it came tea time nobody got up to serve tea except for the same woman who had always served tea yeah and and when the, your one colleague got up to clear the dishes she was following him like what, what, what are you doing I'm supposed to be doing that so it was like it it just never materialized the way <laughs> that you thought it would right it didn't yeah they were they said they were going to go to a self-service office and um yeah it, I asked my supervisor why is she still serving tea and he says well she can't seem to help herself <laughs> so, yeah, so how did that, how did it affect you? Because you were really, throughout the whole book, you're, you, um, it's very clear that you are very respectful of the culture. You're not trying to make waves or anything because they're very kind to you. Um, but you also want to be true to who you are, your own beliefs. And at the same time, you want, you're, you were there as part of this JET program that you're supposed to be introducing international culture or the culture of America. So it was sort of, it was rather difficult, I think, to, to embrace both. Or how did you feel about it? Yeah, there was always kind of this tension within me of like, okay, I want to fit in. I want to be part of this. But I know I'm also supposed to be saying from an international perspective, this is how we regard this. So it was this perpetual tension. And then in addition to that, you know, having this family about an hour away, this host family, I also felt like I don't want to shame my family, you know, because everybody knew that I had this family. And then also I developed a relationship with um, a local man and I didn't want to shame him by, you know, 
being too blunt about things or <laughs> too now, opinionated. What is a, he was what was called a salary man. What is a salary man? What does that actually mean? That's basically a white collar worker. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yes, a white collar worker, he, he, he was working in an office, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yep. He was actually working with the local um, cement company. Cement company. That way, and the cement companies who was housing you. Right. <laughs> uh, you yes. know, tell us about, I thought it was very interesting. So when, how do you pronounce it? Is it Hideo? Hideo. Mm-hmm. Hideo. Okay. So when Hideo would come to visit you, and it was all innocent, you're drinking tea, laughing, watching movies, pretty soon it was like the company was frowning upon it, and they didn't want you, it, it was, you were being looked at like you're not supposed to have a man over. How did that make you feel? Oh, I was absolutely mortified, you know, because I was always used to having male friends and, you know, we would visit each other and we would hang out and listen to music, watch movies, whatever. It was very normal for me to have a male friend come in. And um, all of a sudden, you know, he has supervisors talking to him saying, you should not be visiting her in her apartment. It looks bad. And, you know, to this day, I'm a little bit, I'm still a little baffled by it. And I, I wonder, you know, was it more the appearance that there was something going on romantically when actually there wasn't at the beginning? Or was it more that, like, I was living on the second floor and the second and third floors were the supervisors. And the executives, they, right? Mm-hmm, yes, okay. and that's where they And he me. was a salary man. <laughs> right, and he was in the company dormitory on the first floor with the single guys. And I almost wonder, was it more of that rank issue? than it was. I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't still know. don't know. Yeah. No. You, you still don't. Are you still, I, I mean, I, I, after reading your epilogue, have you been in touch with him or Ryota at all? Um, yes, I've been in touch with Hideo, you okay. know, every now and then we kind of just check in with each other, but not a lot, you know, I mean, our lives have both gone on and he seems to be doing great. Now, did he finally get married? Because he wanted to marry you so much. And you had just come out of a marriage. And he was one of the first people that you confided in that you were were actually divorced. And it didn't right. seem to bother him, right? Right. Um, right. But he, he just assumed that the two of you were going to get married. He loved you. you and it, it really felt like you loved him. Uh, but and he actually came back to Minnesota to visit your family. But um, do you ever think that somehow it's easy to fall in love when you're in another country? But when that person comes to your own country, you have no idea how they're going to really fit in. You know, it's like it's different. Yeah, it is for sure different. You know, um, yeah, you you wonder about the logistics after a while. I mean, at first it's easy, like oh yeah, love. You know, you you care right, about this person and you yeah. But, but when you start thinking logistically, yeah, it gets hard. Like, what would I do there forever? What would he do here forever? You know, there's all that, all those pieces. And then there's the faith piece that comes into it. And, you know, if we're of different faiths, does that matter? And, you know, I mean, how you want to educate your kids? What happens when somebody gets sick? You know, all those daily yeah. details yes. that take up so much energy. Yeah. Well, let's segue into faith because... You do talk about uh, your faith, the presence of God in your life um, throughout the book. And then uh, also, I, when I was reading more about you, I also read about, it's kind of one of the, 
you know, it's sort of like an angel experience that you had meeting an editor, sitting next to an editor on the plane who asked if you were a writer. And after he read your manuscript, he had said that you didn't, you know, didn't quite fit with their imprint because there really wasn't a lot of, um, of spirituality maybe in your original manuscript. Did you go back and put more into it? How did living in Japan, uh, you know, alter, change? How did it make you feel about God's presence in your life or the faith that you had left back in Minnesota? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first wrote this book, I really didn't put a lot of faith in it, just largely because I, I didn't know how to talk about my faith in many ways. And um, and having this conversation with this editor who is, you know, part of this, you know, Christian public publishing company, it really made me realize, like, oh, that is part of my story. That's really an important part. And I did actually go back and rewrite a lot of it to thread that through, because I think that was a big piece. And I think one of the big things that, that really impacted me was when Hideo and I I remember we were visiting a shrine one time, and we did a lot of that with, on our dates because these shrines and temples. You have the are most these... wonderful adventures, beautiful oh. adventures. <laughs> it just sounds so gorgeous. I, I want to talk about the beauty after, but continue. Yeah, yeah. Well, we would go to these places because they're historic and they were gorgeous and you know peaceful. And I would often go and I would, you know, go up to the front of it and clap and toss some coins in and say a little prayer or whatever. And in my mind, I was praying, you know, as a Christian, I was praying to my God. And he asked me one day, he's like, why do you do that? And I, I said, what? He's like, why do you pray to gods that are not your own? And, you know, it really took me aback and I had to think about it. I'm still thinking about it all these years. Later. I know it, it made me when I read that, it made me think, too, if you're just joining us, by the way, where I'm speaking with uh, author Sarah Comber, she uh, wrote this a marvelous memoir called The Same Moon. And the location is Japan. And it's just it's really special. But, you know, it made me think, too, because I always think you know, everybody's entitled to whatever God they want, whether it's the sun or the clouds or, you know, Buddha or Jesus, who cares, right? But um, that was a very interesting comment. So it definitely made you think about how you could meld your life together if you weren't of the same faith. Right, right. And it made me take my own faith more seriously, like, oh, maybe I need to be a little more particular here. Yeah. And yeah, maybe things mean things. While you were there, realize. the huge earthquake happened. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us about your experience with how the people reacted and what were the ramifications, because it was pretty horrendous. It was. I remember just spending days afterwards watching on TV. I mean, thank heavens, uh, it, it, was, it was distant from me, um, a few hundred miles to the north, uh, northeast. But it was and still Japan, so... Yeah, it was. And, you know, just looking at those roads, I'll never forget seeing how these you know giant highways and bridges, expressways and cars had just rolled off of them like beetles. Uh, my neighbors said that they felt the earthquake way down where we were. And, you know, it really makes you appreciate the strength of Earth and um, how things can just change in an instant. Yes. I mean, well, I live in California, and we've oh. had some we've had some dillies. You know, I hope it uh, probably another one will be soon. I, I actually get earthquake updates every single day. Oh. You, 
Okay, the kodo, which is the Japanese zither. Tell us about that. Had to be a very fascinating experience. And are you still doing it? Yeah, not as much now, but I I just did find a teacher here in the Portland metro area, and I did say for ten years after I left Japan, which was a wonderful opportunity.、Um, the koto is just this amazing instrument, and I love how they describe it in terms of a dragon. Like the back of it is the dragon's back, and one end is the dragon's mouth. It's like six feet long, and it's a hollow、uh, wooden instrument with thirteen strings and movable bridges. So in a way, it's kind of this primitive old instrument. It came from China in like the 800s, I believe, Japan.、Um, but so much of the traditional music is played on it, and I just found it fascinating because I grew up as a pianist, and that was my training. And、um, you know, as a pianist, when you go to your lesson, you play—at least in my experience—you play for your teacher. They listen. They tell you what you're doing right and wrong, and they correct you and that sort of thing. But with koto lessons. It seems like almost every time you are playing with the teacher, or there are multiple students in there playing, and it's like what you're learning to do is to match the tone and match the touch of the teacher. You weren't showing what you'd learned, but you were learning to match. And I thought it was such an interesting kind of parallel with Japanese culture, which is more group oriented, you know, less individualistic, I would say, than ours. And this learning to be part of a group. I, I loved it. You know, it was so. It was. I was really applauding you because you did a a concert. You know, with your group, like less than what a few weeks, a month that after you started playing this instrument, and I mean, it's it's that's really miraculous because you made the comment that if it had been piano or something, you would have been practicing for weeks and weeks and weeks. But that that actually didn't happen. So <laughs> there's so much to talk about 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 Japan. But talk to me a little bit about the beauty of like the cherry blossoms and you know the fireflies and all the different things that you really enjoyed nature-wise. Because you know one of the big things is the nature bathing or tree bathing and going out into nature. How how did you? Because you did a lot of hiking and you went on a lot of adventures and many temples and all that. What was some of your favorite things as far as nature went? Mm. I mean, it's just hard to even know where to begin. I do think you touched on the idea of the fireflies. What I really, I, I loved all these like nature viewing. We had, we had the full moon viewing. We had the cherry blossom viewing. You know, these viewing parties would happen. And but, but you did say in your book that these viewing parties would happen. You would be viewing, but everybody else would be eating, drinking, and not really paying much <laughs> attention to the viewing. <laughs> right, right. I know. I was always surprised by this. I'm like, ah,、oh, it works for me. I get to view. <laughs> right. Exactly. That would be me too. <laughs> but I was really so, surprised. Okay, one so okay. So you ended up、um, coming back. You did not marry. Your、um, your love. You actually ended up, and now you're in Washington. You're not in、um, Minnesota, but it's been how many years now since you've been、um, back to Japan? Is it twenty? Well, I I visited again. I oh, you did. Okay.、Then. Yeah. I, the last time I was in Japan, I guess, was in two thousand seven. Okay. So yeah, and fortunately though, my host family came. Was it four years ago? Five years ago, or something? And we. We hung out then. We met up in New York City and 
toured around, which was amazing. That's so amazing. I just think it's amazing that you did your first exchange when what the early nineties, and then what? Eighty six. Oh, 86. Okay. 86. <laughs> you did your first exchange and that was with your host family. And still to this day, you are connected. I think that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the same moon, you were actually working on a thesis and now you've got the book. Yes. So how, what do you want people to take away from your memoir, The Same Moon? You know, I really see it as a story of encouragement and hope. I mean, I think in, in my case, it started because I was trying to get away from a bad situation and just I wanted to abandon ship. And, you know, I realized, obviously, how many times do we fail every day of our lives? And failure is not the end of the world. Failure um, is fertilizer. That's right. Failure is fertilizer. I love yep. your saying of that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was thinking before we got on the phone, um, you know, Mary Oliver's poem where she says, tell me. What, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I think the thing is, I want this story to tell people, you know, just keep moving forward. Yes. Find the beauty in life and don't give up. It's okay. It's going to be okay. It's okay. And just be who you are and enjoy all of it. And, and, you know, I think one of the things for me, too, is the takeaway how important it is to experience and embrace other cultures. And to realize that all of us all around the world, we're, we're having different kinds of experiences. And to be in your own little bubble, you're not ex getting that experience. So I love the fact that you were exchange student, then you went back on this teaching program, and that you still, you know, you still travel and you keep in touch, because I think that opens our eyes to the world. And it gives us so, it gives us more depth and more joy and collaboration. Um, so it, it, it was a beautiful experience. Oh, and one last thing oh, I wanted to ask before we have to end it is how you, it seemed, at least in your book, there was only um, once that I saw that you touched on it, where someone was kind of talking about Americans and after uh, World War II and, and you had visited Hiroshima and stuff, is did you feel, it seemed that you were just embraced by everyone what was the feeling there uh, towards that war? It, it was just that it was war? Yeah. It amazed me. It amazed me the grace that they afforded that yes. whole situation where they said, you know, I, over and over I heard it couldn't be helped. It was war. It, it was war. Yeah, it's just yeah. how it was. You know, I, I found the same thing when I was in Vietnam and Cambodia. I was very afraid to go thinking that, oh, you know, they're going to just despise Americans after what happened in Vietnam. And they called it the American War there, but they love Americans. They just love us. And they say the same thing. Yeah. That was another time. It was war. It's over. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, why? I, it's a blessing to us. We all have to learn to forgive and to forge ahead. Mm, That's yes. you know, kind of the way it goes. Well, thank you for writing The Same Moon, Let's give out your website. It's sarahcomber.com, S-A-R-A-H-C-O-O-2-O, C-O-O-M-B-E-R. 
Sarah Coomber, C-O-O-M-B-E-R.com. And I didn't even get to talk about your yoga or your um, flavors, your unnatural flavors. If people visit the website, you can find out about that. And, uh, And I wish you continued success. Thank you so much for coming on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I really, really enjoyed your story. I, I really did. I resonated with it so much. Oh, thank you so much, Cynthia. This was a lot of fun. Oh, good. And continue the love for the language, uh, for Japanese and for the culture, because it's a beautiful thing. Well, again, visit the website, sarahcomber.com, S-A-R-A-H-C-O-O-M-B-E-R.com. We'll be back in a bit. I'm Cynthia Bryan. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We are coming to you live on the Voice America Network. So don't go away. Sayonara. (laughs) Sayonara. Sayonara. Be the star you are The star you are Change your world Change your life VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Be the star you are The star you are annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. BeTheStarYouAre.org. Dare to care. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is Well, we're back, and I really recommend the memoir, The Same Moon. It is so beautifully written, and the it's just exquisitely descriptive of Japan. It sounds just so, I don't know, just so, so beautiful. And I've been there a couple of times and enjoyed it, but... N- not the way she did because she was there for such a long time. Well, now I just wanted to talk to you. There's comparisons that are really commonly drawn between the 1918 flu pandemic and today's coronavirus. But the reality is the polio outbreak is actually the more apt one. I was reading a Time magazine article and I thought, wow, how true this is. So here today, uh, you know, there's all this nonsense about injecting disinfectant into the body to battle the coronavirus. But back then, what it was was hanging mothballs around your child's neck to prevent the scourge that was known as infantile paralysis. And then, you know, you've heard um, probably about 
other drugs like the hydroxychloroquine to battle the disease, but it, but we really don't know if it works. Back then, what they told you to do was mix a paste of wintergreen, Russian thyme, and the oils of rosemary, caljaput, and wood, and then rub them into the muscles. Now, of course, none of that worked. So if you think that sheltering in place is hard today, I mean, today we have air conditioning and we have Wi-Fi, you know, we have cable TV, we have streaming, you know, we have uh, indoor cooking, we have plumbing, we have electricity. What about doing it back in the blistering summer before there was any of that? And that was 1916. Uh, Mark Twain said, um, history does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And the two epidemics, they're 104 years apart, are forming a tidy couplet. So the polio epidemic started in 1918. Now, New York and other cities, they shut down just as they shut down now. In the first week of July 1916 alone, 552 children in New York in all five boroughs were stricken with polio, and more than 1,000 the second week happened. And even before that uh, fortnight, city officials had, um, and the, the city official, he was actually the great nephew of the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. His name was Haven Emerson. He made it his business to tell New Yorkers they had to stay home and they had to stay apart. Children under 16 were not permitted to go to any public space. Open air movies, um, which was a new summer attraction, you know, um, those were forbidden. The 4th of July celebrations, they were all canceled. So just like COVID-19, polio was a seasonal disease. And the polio virus prefer, preferred the hot weather. And they assume, although we still don't really know, that SARS-CoV-2, uh, which causes COVID-19, that at least it's thought to um, prefer cool weather. But now, as in 1916, the push for a vaccine is thus a cyclical one. It's a race against a viral tombine that is set to go off by the calendar. Now, we might be just yelling for a vaccine right now, but they were also yelling for one in 1916 for polio. But the wait was really long. It wasn't until the summer of 1935 that there was a glimmer of hope. And there were two great field trials, uh, one by Dr. Morris Brody and another one by Dr. William Park. And they were of New York City. And there was also um, one by Dr. John Colmer of Philadelphia. Now, the vaccine involved using a weakened polio virus, one that wouldn't cause symptoms but would still confer immunity. And that was the one by Colmer. And in the case of Park and Brody, the technique involved a killed virus that would work more or less the same way. So what they did is they injected 9,000 children with the Park-Brody vaccine that summer and 10,000 with the Colmer's version. And both of them were absolute disasters. Uh, some of the cases, they caused polio instead of preventing it. And in other cases, they caused terrible infections and inflammations and children died. It wasn't until Dr. Salk in 1955, so 39 years elapsed between the epidemic of 1916 
and the moment when science would at last have um, have a, a vaccine for the disease. So uh, now that we are hoping for a vaccine, of course, you know, we have computers and so much more now, and we're hoping for one in a year or 18 months. And that is definitely better than 35 years. So diseases don't change their characters and human beings kind of don't either, but science is pressing ahead. And in our um, 21st century, that's something we need to be really grateful for because hopefully we will have a vaccine before, um, you know, the end of 2021. And in the meantime, just stay safe and stay strong and be tolerant. Well, thank you for being great listeners, allowing me into your life every week. Make sure you're here every Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. We're doing Writers on Wednesdays, and you can change your life. You can find some great books, and you can make your dreams come true. For more information about Star Style Productions, visit CynthiaBryan.com. To make a donation to Be The Star You Are charity to help keep us on the air, please visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. Or if it's easier, just use the initials BTSYA.org. My aim is always to encourage, inspire, inform, amuse, and motivate you and help you to find a great book. And I really do recommend The Same Moon by Sarah Comber. So pick up a copy this week. And until we celebrate next week, remember, love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. My name is Cynthia Bryan for Star Style. I thank you and encourage you. Be the star you are. And you can be your unapologetically authentic self. Have a wonderful week. And again, please visit bethestarur.org. And if you're looking to volunteer, you can find information on our website. Dream, create, inspire, make a difference. And we'll be here next Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. And listen to Express Yourself Teen Radio on Sundays, 3 p.m. Pacific, right here on the Voice America Network Empowerment Channel. Thanks for joining me. We'll talk next week. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. You are the star. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are.